0: Testing? Yeah, good. Good morning. Good to see everyone. Um, I'm kind of excited. My heart is racing, so I'm hoping I don't pass out up here. Um, but it's good to see you. Uh, for those of you who are visiting who don't know me, uh, my name is Seski, and that is my first name. Last name is Paul. So if you don't remember Seski, you can call me Paul, like the apostle, or like, you know, the common first name. You can call me that. Um, and I am one of the pastors here, like Lee says. And it's just so far; it's just been great worshiping with you guys. The the songs have been encouraging my soul, preparing me for this message that I have for you this morning. Um, this morning, I will be preaching, teaching, whatever it turns out to be. You know, uh, on Psalm eighty-six, um, the title of my sermon, and I. I flip-flopped a whole lot of titles, and I sent Debbie the title of A King's Prayer. And as I'm going through, I said, you know what? Let me add a little something to it. So I said, A King's Prayer to the King of Kings. I ran that by Dr. Joe, who's not here, and Dr. Joe said, yeah, that sounds great. So I'm going with it, okay? Uh, And for those of you who read the newsletter, you saw the title. Well, I changed it, all right? Psalm 86 is perhaps one of my favorite psalms. Um, in particular, verse 11. This is David's model prayer. This prayer is a petition. It's a praise. And it's, it's a prevail of David and so much more, as you're going to see. Uh, you know, back in my days of folly... Um, when I was steeped in my addiction, some of you did not know that, in those days when I was deep in despair, um, it was this psalm that God used to just recapture my heart, reorient me towards him. And I know some of you may find it hard to believe, but I was, I was a real knucklehead back in the day. I was. And um, Steph might probably have me rethink that used to be a real knucklehead. Uh, you, yeah, so you guys are laughing. You know what I'm talking about. Um, I too often I fail to realize that in order to prevail over life's difficulties and we all go through life's difficulties and some of us are in life's difficulties right now in order to prevail against those it was necessary to first first cry out to God for help and then we praise him as we wait for his promised deliverance and it is a promise. You know, he's, delivers, he's delivered us through Christ Jesus, our Lord. But I'm talking about through all the trials and the tribulations that we go through, God, our Lord, promises deliverance. And sometimes we forget that. God used this model prayer of David's, this humble cry and acknowledgement of the triune God to bring me, desperate, broken, to the foot of the cross Where I found and continue to find mercy, I find grace, I find hope, I find peace, I find healing. Whatever it is I need at that time, prayer brings me to the foot of the cross where God just (sighs) meets me. Um, So I praise God for David's model prayer. It opens and closes with a petition in verse 1 and 7 and in verse 14 through 17. But the heart of the communication revolves around adoration and thanksgiving. As you read through this psalm, David is adoring, is giving thanks. And in the midst of this petition, he is adoring this God who called him a man after his own heart. That's what David is doing. He is... Giving thanks, the the Greek word eucharistio, you know, some of you may know it as the Eucharist. That's giving of thanks to God who is great. And before I go on, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, this morning I pray as David prayed in verse 11 of Psalm 86. Would you teach us, Lord, your ways that we may live according to your truth. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Grant us purity of heart so that we may honor you always. Amen. I don't know why my mouth gets dry every time I come up here. Um, So as I indicated before, Psalm 86 gives us a helpful lesson in prayer. I couldn't, I tried to find different things like to pull out of Psalm 86, but you can't overlook that the context of this psalm is a total focus on David praying to God, okay? Um, it, is, it is the only psalm in the book three of the Psalter labeled a prayer of David In many ways, some of the words of the psalm are not original to David. It's like a mosaic, okay? David pieced together verses from the psalms, the other psalms, and Old Testament scripture. In Psalm 86, it is the earnest, the heartfelt cry of a desperate man of God, reaching and grabbing hold of the God whom he knew full well. Again, David knew God and all his folly, like mine, and all his failures. David knew God. He went to God. He cried out to God. He, he ran to God. That is why God called David a man after his own heart. In his flesh, in his nature, he never ceased to forget who his creator was. The psalm presents 15 requests. Some of them were repetitive, fired at God with a strong sense of urgency. David is in need, and he's, he's shooting this at God. okay It falls into four sections in Psalm one, I mean in verse one, seven, 1 through seven, David cries out in great need for God to hear and act on his behalf. In verses eight through 10 in a deliberate statement of praise, David extols God as the only true God, the Lord of all the nations. That's David's declaration there. In verses 11 through 13, David asked God to teach him his way and to unite his heart to fear God's name so that he will glorify his name forever. Finally, in verses 14 through 17, in light of his fierce enemies, and he had many, including his sons, Okay, David again appears to God's mercy and his grace to please, Lord, deliver me from my enemies. Although there are many lessons on prayer in this psalm, which can make up a whole different sermon series, I think the main lesson is this simple one. Our great needs should drive us to pray to a great God who alone can deliver us. When we recognize our great need, our desperation, we should be crying out to God on the regular because we are always in need, always in need. When we are seemingly overcome with difficulties, it is God who is our deliverer. That he is able to deliver is one of the greatest, one of the greatest themes, if not the greatest theme of the Bible. He is our deliverer. Uh you read this quote from Spurgeon, who says, I should find it difficult to discover a season in which I have cried unto God and not received deliverance during the whole run and tenor of my life. In hundreds, I dare say thousands of instances, I have had a distinct, I have had as distinct answers to prayer as if God had thrust his right hand through the blue skies and given right into my lap the bounty which I had sought from him. As we go deeper into the psalm, I want to explore four questions. Why should we pray? Why? Why should we pray? To whom should we pray? How should we pray? Amen, Nancy. And what should we pray for? Simple questions, but they can be deeper than they appear. So the first one, why should we pray? We should pray, like I said before, because whether you realize it or not, whether I realize it or not, I have, we have great, great needs, not just needs. We have great needs whether you realize it or not. David begins in verse 1, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I'm poor, I'm afflicted, and I'm in need, I'm needy. In verses 2 and 16, David calls out to God to save him. The fact that he cries out for God to save him shows that David knew that he was lost. David knew that he could not in any way, shape, or fashion save himself. There's only one who can save. And in verse 7, he mentions that he is in the day of trouble. Hey, how many of us can say, wow, yeah, I'm in a trouble day today"? Or look overall at the picture of what's going on in our nations. We are in a day of trouble. In verse 14, he specifically manch- mentions the band of arrogant, violent men that were seeking his life. David was deeply aware of his great need which drove him to earnest, earnest prayer. This may sound obvious, you know, to some of you, but we all, again, have great needs that, we should, that should drive us on a regular basis, should drive us to earnest prayer. But the truth is, our pride blinds us as to how needy we really are, so that we only rely on ourselves we rely on other people and some other godless method to get us out of the trouble, the circumstance, the situation, whatever it is that we're in. We rely on everything else but God. And then finally, when nothing else has worked, when we're at our wit's end, so to speak, I guess, I guess I'll pray. We Sometimes save prayer as the last resort. But as John Bunyan said, listen to this. I had to read this several times because I'm a little dense. You can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. I'm going to say it again. You can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Amen? Prayer should always be our first resort. In this psalm, we find an elderly and devout David crying out with a deep trust as he writes in verse 7 and 8. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, Nor are there any works like yours. Age, experience, and spiritual maturity allows us to know that everything else but the Lord will disappoint. If you've lived, well, I'm not that old. If you've lived, I was going to say as long as I have. If you've lived a long time, you know, especially as a Christian, when you try certain things, you know that everything that you've tried, for me, it was the drugs, it was the alcohol, everything disappoints. And then you come to God and you surrender and you allow him to do a work. And the satisfaction, and and that's a mere word, satisfaction, that you feel the peace, the relief is undescribable. And you know what I mean. It's indescribable. You've never experienced this. The drugs, whatever it is, the alcohol, whatever it is, the kids, whatever it is, doesn't give you that peace, that assurance that you are seeking for, that I am seeking for. The main reason that people cry out, do not cry out to God to save them from their sins. Is that they do not see their great need as sinners before a holy God? That's it. We don't see it. Those that don't cry out to God, they see themselves as basically good. Sure, they know they're not perfect, but they're not evil sinners as well either. Rather, they compare themselves with terrorists. They compare themselves with the child molester. They compare themselves with the murderous thugs, and they think, well, you know what? I'm I'm all right. I'm okay. Okay. They don't see. We don't see. But when I say they, I'm talking about the unsaved here. They don't see the desperate need so they don't cry out to God to save them. But even once we're saved, we fall into the same trap, don't we? We're oblivious to the power of the enemy. And and I have to bring this in here. This is a must. We're oblivious that we have an enemy. That prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And First Peter tells us that. We overlook the strong appeal of the indwelling sin that lurks within us. We overlook that. We, all, we forget that within this thing is sin that rages to get out and to express itself. We overlook that. And we find that in Galatians 5.17. We don't recognize our own selfishness, which undermines our relationships with our families and our relationships with one another in the church. And so we don't pray. So perhaps our first prayer should be, God, God, show me my great needs, the needs that only you can meet. Secondly, to whom should we pray? We should pray to the only true and triune God, great in power, love, grace, and mercy, and so much more. Oswald Chambers in Run Today's Race says, let us remember that we are petitioning and praising an all-sufficient God who is more than adequate to meet our every need, He is the Lord, the owner, the master, the boss of all events, circumstances, and adversities. Nothing is too difficult for God. God told Jeremiah, Behold, I am the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Our God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works mightily within us. Jesus said in Luke, the things that are impossible with men become possible with God. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that the impossible is possible with God? Is that the God that you, that I am trusting this morning? Do you believe in this sovereign, this awesome This inexplicable God that goes beyond what you can think or imagine. Is this the God you're praying to this morning? God, the Psalm, brothers and sisters, shows us that David knew the God to whom he was praying. Knowing God's attributes and his promises gives us hope, it gives us endurance. In prayer, okay, it, it just draws us to prayer because we know there's hope there. To approach God's holy throne, we must know that he is good. You can't doubt that. Ready to forgive always. And abundant and loving kindness to all who call upon him. And that loving kindness is that word that Pastor John loves, that hesed. I can't get that rolling thing like he does, but you know what I'm saying. That's, that's the loving kindness. And you're going to see in this psalm, loving kindness, loving kindness. David remembers and reminds us that God is the hesed, God, the loving and kind God. We must know that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. In this prayer, David basically pits who God is against his enemy and leaves the outcome to God. He basically says, You know what? I'm turning this over to my God. You deal with him. That's basically what he's saying. <laughs> okay, I'm done with you guys. You deal with my God. What an attitude. I want to have that attitude when I'm pressed on all sides by either actual enemies or the enemy of my soul. You know what? I'm done. You you deal with God with this. I'm done. So, we go on to the next. God is the only true God. That's why. We pray to God because he is the only true God, great in power. David, in verses 8 through 10, exclaims, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. You know what? I forgot to start my starter. Oh, well. (laughs) For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. So we first see that David praises and extols God. David, before he comes before God, acknowledges, gives God the glory, exalts God. That's the first thing we do when we come to prayer. Acknowledge who you're coming before. Don't just come and shoot the requests at him. Acknowledge that you are before a holy, sovereign, all-knowing, merciful, gracious. You go ahead and throw in all the adjectives. You know them. that That's the God that you're before. And, and David knew that. So we first see him. He praises and extols God in verse 4 and 5 by saying, Make glad the soul of your servant. For you, O Lord, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant and loving kindness to all who call upon you. Abundant and loving kindness. If you guys don't learn anything from this series, you're gonna remember that the God you serve is a loving, kind, compassionate, mercy, merciful and gracious God. But don't forget, he also judges. I'll get to that in a little bit, okay? So let me ask you a question. What are you lifting up your soul to today? What is it that you're lifting your soul up to? Okay. How did you come in here today? Are you lifting up your problems? Are you fixed on those who are coming against you? You know, you call them your enemies. Are you too focused on what you have to do this week? All the things I got to do this week that are even distracting you right now in this place. Maybe you're putting too much dependence on your husband or your wife. Okay? Could it be that you're lifting up your soul to the shrine of power? You have position. You have whatever. And you know what? That's what drives you. Your position are you lifting it up to your positions to your possessions think on these things listen seven times in this psalm David uses the name Adonai Lord Lord Adonai verses 3 verse 4 verse 5 verse 8 verse 9 verse 12 verse 15 he's calling out to his Lord to his Adonai that is his focus. It emphasizes God's lordship and his sovereignty. He made the nations. He has ordained that they will all come and worship before him. And David knew that. He made it all. And you know what? One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God. Now in verse 8, by referring to the gods, okay. David means the idols, the demons that the heathen worship. Satan is called the god of this world, okay. And follow me here. This is not off track. From you, You have to know that we are in a spiritual battle, like I said earlier. That we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Okay, Satan is called the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4 and John 12. And he says the whole world lies in his power. And John, Paul, referring to demons, says that there are many gods and many lords in heaven and on earth. These demons are spirit beings organized under the enemy, Satan. With great power over individuals and entire nations, you see that in in Second Thess- Thessalonians, in Acts 19, and Daniel. But we must not; we cannot ever forget that we are in, continually in a battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. I just remember when God really impressed that upon my heart. You know, when I'm when I'm. I was going to say fighting. When I'm arguing with my wife, okay? When, I'm, when, when, you're, in that, when you're in that struggle, I remember my wife said, uh, we're in this together. Um, we are a team. You know, she reminds me of these things. And then I'm, yes, this is a fight. This is a spiritual battle, okay? We must not and we cannot forget it. Prayer is... And will always be. You cannot, you will not in your own strength overcome in this spiritual battle. Good luck if you're trying. I tried and I told you where I ended up. Okay? You cannot. Prayer and trust in God is the only way to win this spiritual battle. Let's remember that at the time which God determines, he will bring fire down from heaven to destroy all his enemies. Satan and all his demons will be thrown into the lake of fire where they will be tormented forever. That's in Revelation 20. Yeah. And even now, before that time, we are ensured in First John, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Okay? Knowing that, knowing that should motivate us, should drive us to prayer continually. Are you catching my point here? This should give us great confidence to pray. Although the forces of darkness are powerful, they are no comparison to their creator. Don't forget that. Because God created them and God has willed that all creation will be made to worship him. We can earnestly pray for the lost peoples. Like our brother is doing over there in Barcelona, you know. Of the world knowing that God will bless our evangelistic and missionary efforts God is gonna do that so don't please don't take it lightly that praying for our missionaries is important because prayer is our first source of defense we forget that and offense not just defense but offense (laughs) I think that's more primarily so, okay. Uh, we can earnestly pray for the, uh, I was there already. There may be temporary setbacks, okay, as there often have been in the church history, but ultimately and finally, God will prevail. We can pray to him as the only true God who is great in power. And so we go on to the next reason. And that is, God is great in love, I've said it before, and grace and mercy and so much more. Twice in verse 3 and 16, David entreated God to be gracious to him. Twice again, in verse 5 and 15, he cites Exodus 34, where God revealed himself to Moses. Here is how God disclosed himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who speaks loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished judgment. Okay? The great self-revelation of God is one of the most frequently quoted texts in the Old Testament, and that's what David is doing here. He's going through the Old Testament and quoting it. It's referred to in Numbers and various books, Nehemiah, Psalms, Joel, Jonah. David uses it to appeal to God, to answer his prayer. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant and loving kindness to all, all who call upon you. Again, in verse 15, David prays, but you, O Lord, are a God, merciful, gracious, Slow to anger, how patient is God with us, right? Slow to anger and abundant and loving kindness and truth. Since this is God's repeated revelation of himself to us, it gives us the assurance that we can approach his throne boldly and receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. And that's in Hebrews chapter 4. If you have never come to God through Jesus and his shed blood to receive forgiveness for your sins, he invites you to come and ask. You will receive his abundant mercy and grace. If you're sitting here and you have not received this, he invites you. I beg you, don't leave this place. Do not leave here today without accepting this abundant grace and this abundant mercy that God is offering you and me through Christ Jesus our Lord. You're going to have a chance to do that when we call the pastors up and their wives to pray. If you want to come up and pray for that very specific thing, you will have an opportunity to do it, okay? If, as a Christian, you have failed God by sinning, whether habitually or occasionally, by sinning. He invites you to come for forgiveness, mercy, and grace as well. When David asks God to preserve his soul and adds, for I am a godly man, David calls himself a godly man, okay? He does not mean that he deserves, okay? Understand this. David is not being arrogant or proud here. He doesn't mean that he deserves God's answers, okay? based on his godliness. David sinned as we know. He sinned often, and he sinned hard as king. Sometimes, like I said, in major ways. Rather Rather, the word godly stems from the Hebrew word. Again, that Hebrew word, hesed, for loving kindness, or God's loyal covenant love. It means that David is a loyal follower of God. Loyal, an adjective that barely exists today, being loyal to something. Okay? David is not being self righteous, but simply stating the fact that he was committed. I'm all in, Lord. I'm all in. Nothing is going to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I'm all in. If you're following the Lord, but you're struggling with overwhelming problems beyond your ability to handle, he invites you to come as you are to his throne of grace to receive mercy and grace and help in your time of need. And in case you're worried that your problems are too great, that you're bugging God, oh, I've, I've, I've brought this over and over. This sin has been constant. I'm always going to God. His His loving kindness is abundant. It doesn't run out. You can't exhaust God's love. You just can't. I know you want to give up sometimes, but I'm telling you, you will never exhaust God's love. It won't happen. Okay? God's abundant love, grace, and mercy should motivate us to come to him in prayer With all our needs, whether great or small, just come to the gracious, loving Father with your need. So, we should pray because we have great needs. We pray to God who is great in power, love, and mercy. And thirdly, how should we pray? We should pray, like I said before, earnestly, continually, thankfully, in humility and in faith. David's close relationship with God permeates the entire prayer. Will you see that? He knew God intimately, like I said before, and he knew God personally. So he felt free. When you're, when you're comfortable with somebody, okay, your wife, your, your best friend, and you're going through or you're feeling some kind of way, you're just like, you know what? You dump. <laughs> Don't you? You dump. This is the kind of Freedom that God is calling from us. He's calling us to know him intimately so that we're free whenever, whatever, we're free to come to him, okay? And the point is, David wasn't mumbling through a formal liturgy, okay? He wasn't just going mindlessly down a list of prayers, okay? Like a starving beggar, he was entreating God to give him food. John Bunyan, and On Praying in the Spirit pictures two beggars that come to to our door. One is poor, lame, wounded, and almost starving, and the other is healthy and robust. They both use the same words in asking for food. They both say that they're starving, okay? But the first man speaks out of the misery and pain and the agony that he's in from being hungry, whereas the second man Calmly sets forth his need. Listen, hey, can you give me some food? I'm, I'm hungry. Even so it is with God, Bunyan said. Oh, wait a minute. So, I missed the part. So who do you think is going to get that food? The first man who's desperate, who's seemingly more desperate than the other. Okay? Even so it is with God, Bunyan says. Those who come to him out of custom and formality going through the motions of prayer are less likely to be heard than those who earnestly pray out of the anguish of their souls and we pray continually David says in verse 3 for unto you I cry all day long again this continual prayer what David is it's an intense awareness of his need and Paul tells us um, in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. He doesn't mean that we should pray nonstop, which, which is impossible. Rather, the word was used of a in context, it was as a hacking cough. Like back in the day, whooping cough was a deal, like it's a constant, you can't stop, a hacking cough, or a repeated military barrage, nonstop barraging of the enemy. Okay? The idea is keep coming back to pray over and over and over again. We pray thankfully. I'm gonna speed through this. We pray thankfully. David writes, "I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart." Similarly, right after telling us to pray without ceasing, Paul says, "And everything, give thanks, for this is God's will in Christ Jesus." We can't give thanks from a heart unless it is a submissive heart, unless it is a humble heart, submissive to to his sovereign hand in our circumstances and in every trial that we're going through. Okay? Pray in humility. David's prayer is permeated with humility. He doesn't angrily demand better treatment in, in light of the fact that he is God's chosen king. He's not... He's not paying the power game, okay? He doesn't complain. Lord, after all the ways I've served you, after everything that I've done, this is what I get? He prays for God to be gracious to him. He refers to himself as God's servant, the son of his handmaid in verse 4 and 16. He admits that he is afflicted and needy. He admits his weakness by asking God to grant him strength. thinking of whether to tell you a story here I'm looking at the time but I'm gonna miss I'm gonna go ahead and say it was gonna be a funny story but I'll skip it okay I'm looking at the time so why should we pray because we have great needs to whom should we pray to the only true God great in power love and mercy how should we pray we pray earnestly continually thankfully in humility and in faith and finally what should we pray for we pray for salvation for joys and trials for a teachable obedient single-minded reverent heart and for God's glory and supremacy over all this is enough for another sermon right there but I don't have time for that okay pray for salvation David asks God to save him in verse 2 and 16 which is the context which the context obviously refers to him being saved from his enemies okay but in the New Testament terms, pray for God to serve, save you from his judgment. Jesus came as a savior. He didn't come to save decent people, okay? He came to serve the needy, the broken, okay? Those who didn't get a boost from their self-esteem, so to speak. He came to save sinners, as we see in 1 Timothy 1.15, if you have never cried out to God for salvation, I'm going to say it again. This is your main need. Nothing else matters. We pray for joy in our trials. I'm going to skip the next one. You know what? Let me, let me read this. David writes, But you, O oh Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and, t- and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. O oh, grant strength to your servant and save the son of your handmaid. Your hand Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, O oh Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Our God is one who has all authority, control, and rule. He delivers us in loving kindness. I'm stuck here. Okay, here we go. In loving kindness and truth, with utmost mercy. Pray for joy in your trials, quickly. Make glad the soul of your servant, David says in verse 4. That was a bold request, okay? And Spurgeon says, we are either to be rejoicing in the Lord or pining after him. Ask God to make you miserable unless his conscious presence makes you happy. Okay. Jumping real quick. Pray for a teachable and obedient, single-minded, reverent heart. Pray for God's glory and supremacy. David prophesied that all nations will worship before God and glorify his name. In verse 9, he also affirms that he will glorify God's name forever. One reason that God brings trials into our lives, hear this, is so that we will call upon him and glorify him when he rescues us. So in our troubles, we should be looking for ways to magnify the Lord so that others will be drawn to him. Others see us going through our struggles. We're not panicking. We're not freaking out. We're trusting God that is a witness. That is being a witness. That is being evangelistic. When others see me not freaking out and they know I'm saved, they see me trusting God, you're witnessing to God's mercy and his grace in your life. So in all our troubles, we should be looking for ways to magnify the Lord so that others will be drawn to him. In the midst of life-threatening situations such as David was in, we can still affirm, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant and loving kindness to all who call upon you. So in conclusion, remain teachable, flexible, and adaptable to God's plans while you are passing through difficulties. He's using whatever hardship you're in, you're going through right now for a greater purpose. I know it's hard. I know it's hard to see the greater purpose, but you you won't see the greater purpose. He's the sovereign God. He knows the greater purpose. David surely remembered how the Lord carried out his greater plan through Joseph when he allowed him to be sold into slavery in the hands of Egypt. Okay? When we realize that the Lord can use our adversaries as sandpaper to refine us more into his image and purpose, we can rest knowing that he does all things well. Never get to the point where you are so wise in your own eyes. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not rely on your own insight. It is in constant exercise of prayer, and I close here, as it was taught by Matthew 6, that we work through all things as in that living communication with the living God. We find our will just adjusting to His when we pray. You know, that selfish, when we come with that selfish prayer, as we continue to pray, we find God. His spirit adjusting our will to His will. Prayer is the lead, living, breathing discovery of who God is and what He intends to do. It is no longer than a question of why pray, because God would do what He wants to do anyway. Rather, prayer is an invitation, even a challenge. Extended to all believers. The truth is, we must pray because God is going to do whatever He wills, and He invites us to share in the, the eternal life that He has authored for us. Let us pray. O oh Lord, teach us your ways that we might live according to your truth. May our study of your word not be an exercise simply in gaining truth, but also a way of living according to your truths. May obedience always be the end of our Bible study and prayers, Lord. Unify our hearts that we might fear your name. Bring together the inconsistent parts of our inner lives so we might seek you above all. Each moment of each day, may our life's purpose be truly to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. Amen. And now we're going to be transitioning to uh, communion, the Lord's Supper. As we do, I'm going to go ahead and ask the men if they will come and distribute the elements to the four sections. And as they do, I want us to reflect on, give me one second here. I want us to reflect on the fact that the celebration of the Lord's Supper is one of the most significant things that we do as Christians together, okay? Whether we gather around the Lord's table weekly or we do it monthly, followers of Christ proclaim that only in Jesus, in the hope of Christ, do we receive forgiveness and grace to live as he did. We do this to remember all that Christ has done for us. Thinking about the past, of course, it's natural. Okay, it's nothing new. But in the Lord's Supper, Jesus gives us his people a gift that does more than let us look back and remember. By proclaiming Jesus' death, each time we celebrate the Supper, we also look forward and we look upward as we declare the ongoing power of Jesus' death and resurrection for his people today and forever. Jesus offers us a new kind of memory. Our salvation began in the past okay but Christ continues to nourish us daily as believers as we remember his body crucified and his blood shed for us just as a daily meal gives us strength for our physical life so also the regular celebration of Jesus' death and resurrection it nourishes us spiritually okay and we read as we read the apostle's paul's words in 1 Corinthians Uh, Chapter 11, verse 23 and 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup Is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink. Drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The way we do communion here is you guys come up, you go to the four stations, you get the elements, okay? And you can go back to your seat and... Whenever you're ready, you take of the elements, okay? But I want to make a plea. If you're here and you're struggling this morning, okay, our pastors and their wives are going to be coming up front. If you're here, you're struggling. You've heard this message and it's impacted your heart. You need prayer. If you need salvation, if you know here this morning, That you don't have that right standing with God where you feel that confidence to go in boldly into the throne of grace and you don't have that. I'm begging you. I'm begging you and I don't beg. The only person I beg is my wife. Okay. I'm begging you to come up here and let one of us, let somebody pray for you. Okay. Don't leave here with that burden, with that heaviness. And that's my plea to you this morning. So please, come, partake, pray, and let's worship God together.